0: Words are important, and we need to be able to to talk about typefaces in a way that doesn't block creativity, because the moment you say geometric sans serif, 90% of the decisions have been made. We come then to design with preordained almost ideas of what typefaces are supposed to look like and what they're supposed to do. But there is so much fun sitting on that fence in between the categories, right?
1: Hey, everybody. I'm Micah Rich.
2: And I'm Olivia Kane.
1: Welcome to the weekly Typographic.
2: Our weekly episodes talk about type and design news, but we've got a bonus episode for you today. We're chatting with a designer that's innovating the field through education and their practice.
1: It's going to be fun. Let's jump in.
2: Hey, everyone. This week, we're interviewing Nadine Shaheen. Nadine is an award-winning Lebanese type designer and CEO of I Love Typography, the beloved typography blog and now Font Marketplace. Nadine has an MA in typeface design from the University of Reading and a PhD from Leiden University in the Netherlands. She worked for Linotype and Monotype from 2005 to 2018, starting as their Arabic specialist and later becoming their UK type director and legibility expert. Her contribution to the expansion of Arabic typography in the past couple decades is monumental. She designed Arabic companions to some of the most well known typefaces, including Helvetica, Frutiger, Palatino, and Univer. And her work has been recognized by countless publications and organizations, including Type Directors Club, Fast Company, and Creative Review. Welcome, Nadine. Hi,
0: thank you so much for the invitation.
2: It's great to have you on. Before this, we were kind of joking, it seems like you have like seven full-time jobs at any given point. What have you been up to <laughs> lately?
0: Yes, I mean, it's a little bit crazy. I, I'm a bit of a workaholic, I have to say, and I keep getting myself into more and more things as we go along. Um, I wasn't planning to do more than just set up my own foundry and do my own thing, and, and I was studying like, you know, at Cambridge as well lately for, for an, another degree, and which I finished, and and so, and then I finished that, and then suddenly there's time on my hands. And because, you know, like running your own foundry doesn't seem to fill up my time. So, <laughs> so, so, suddenly like I have you know, an extra
1: half hour in my day. So, yeah,
0: why not? <laughs> so, theoretically, it's two full time jobs. But at the moment, I think with I Love Typography, I do the equivalent of maybe two full time jobs, and then I do a part time job for the Arabic type. I think that that would sum up my day. I start when the UK starts, and I finish with specific time. So West Coast. I work UK to West Coast. Oh basically. My God. It's not sustainable. I will not stay like this. I will take a break at some point.
1: The last two months of the year is when I sleep. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> I do get to sleep. We have restrictions. It's lockdown. I am high risk. I can't have a social life at the moment that is comfortable and easy. So when I work a lot, I don't notice that life is so empty. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not easy with the pandemic. It's not easy at all. So uh, being productive and actually doing something is a way to keep your energy levels high and to keep feeling like some part of life is normal because you, because you can still produce things, right? And then at some point, after I finish my second vaccine shot, and then the, the numbers are better, and then maybe I can socialize more and then go back to maybe only two full-time jobs, not two and a quarter. So... <laughs> two and a half much
1: more normal making the rest of us look bad over here
0: no come on no it's it's, not yeah I mean if I were in a relationship or married with kids obviously I would not be able to do this this is the reality of life but I only have a puppy and she sleeps a lot so (laughs) she I still need to play (laughs) with her and take her out and everything but you know there is time so it's okay
2: where are you based currently right now? I know you're in the UK, but whereabouts?
0: No, no, no. I actually, like, legally, I'm in the UK. But I sort of escaped in the summer, last summer, to Barcelona for a month. And then the case numbers went up. And I sort of stayed here. So I'm, I'm still in Barcelona. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. No, because, oh, like, the wow. UK is not managing the lockdown quite well, the pandemic. So it didn't feel safe mm-hmm. to go back here is more reasonable everyone wears masks everywhere no one yells at you for wearing a mask and so because I'm high risk it makes a big deal for me to to feel safe in the streets yeah, yeah. you know so yeah you know people watching or hearing this like five to ten years from now maybe they will suddenly like oh my god those days <laughs> hopefully behind us <laughs>
1: <laughs> or it'll be hope, the apocalypse yeah, and, and they'll be they... like wow those were the golden days <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: I hope not. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You've been quite busy lately, and I guess I'll give some background. So we know you've joined the I Love Typography team. Things kind of happen really fast. The announcement was made recently that um, I Love Typography is now a font marketplace. Micah and I have been huge fans for so long because of the incredible blog and deep dives it does into history and just like the passion about history and typography emanating from that place. It's now considered an ecosystem, which is exciting. I love that, you know, we're not losing the blog part of it. We have a marketplace. Micah and I are so curious how the collaboration started with I Love Typography. I know John Boardley runs it. um, And now it's a little bit of a team going on and kind of would love to hear about like how that started.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, John and I have been in touch for many, many years. We've never met in real life, by the way. He's in Vietnam. I um, was in Germany, in the UK, now Spain. But it's the um, type of like professional relationship that you build with people online, even though, you know, we're in the same circle, even though you're not in the same circle physically. And we've chatted on and off about the blog and what he does and 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 so it was always at the back of my mind that, you know, I never told him but I always thought that this is something quite interesting to do, to expand that blog. And um the impetus really started last fall when I was preparing for the launch of my first foundry collection. So ever since I left Monotype, I've had my own foundry and I I had been doing a lot of custom work, but I wanted to do library as well. And so I released seven typefaces at the same time, and six of them by me and one from Omeyma. And I was looking at distribution, and I was not comfortable with any of the options on the market for a variety of reasons. And at the same time, I was chatting with a friend about this, and that's sort of what galvanized the idea to to come back and and actually do this. So I had a chat with John, and I was like, I was actually texting John, and he was barely replying he was busy finishing an article and like you know completely completely into that you know how he gets and then I was like John I really really need to talk to you There's something I need to talk to you about. And so then we had a chat and he was immediately on board. and He was like, whoa, okay. So uh, yeah, so so we decided to expand I Love Typography from the world's favorite blog into hopefully the world's favorite shop as well for getting all the fonts that you need and want. So that's sort of the plan. And we had our first meeting on October 22 of 2020 and we launched June 28th. Of 2021. This is for people hearing us, you know, ten years from now. So, uh, so basically, it's nine months of work, uh, and and it, it, it is a little bit incredible that we managed to pull this off so quickly. I still cannot believe, but I think it's the lockdown effect and like trying not to get bored, and I also tend to like to work quickly. And I do this sometimes in design as well. Like, I have these 48 hour projects that I sometimes do. And when you need to work quickly, you don't have time to question yourself too much. And you sort of go with intuition and, and you have this sort of momentum, you pick up momentum and you get an idea and you act on it. You get another idea and you keep running through it, you know, and, and it sort of propels you forward and you end up. Yeah. So we, we signed up 40 foundries to be part of the first cohort that launches with us. We're signing up more as well as we speak. And yeah, onboarded all of them, did all the technical development. I mean, we had a team of six developers, obviously. It wasn't me and John. But yeah, if you want to go fast, you need a big team. So so we had six developers on the project. Not all of them knew one another from before. So they sort of met on the project and it worked <laughs> somehow. I, now looking at it is a little bit crazy. But at the time, we wanted to go quickly to the market again for many reasons. The thing is, like the market, the way we have it, it's not in good shape. And the longer you wait, the worse it becomes, the situation. So it felt that this is an intervention that needs to happen quickly, rather than in another year's time. We've been on a downward spiral for quite a few years. If you hear the feedback from the foundries, if you see all the, the, the crazy discounts that happening are happening, the, the devaluing of the work... There's a lot of negative trends that we could see and we didn't feel that time was on our side. It felt that we need to work quickly and get to the market quickly, if only as a message to say like, look, there is another option, there's another way to do things. So to sort of restart that conversation of how can foundries work with one another and how can we build yeah a healthy ecosystem for all of us to exist in, that, that, was, that was necessary.
1: I think it'd be really interesting to hear your take on the details of what you folks are doing different with with this new version?
0: Yeah. So we need to separate between what is different for the foundries and what is different for the consumer. So the people, the customers who come to us, I think it's easier to start with the foundries first. So the way that we've done things, uh, we've allowed the foundries to set their own pricing at all tier levels. So a lot of competitors don't do that. You get to price the first Here, the desktop for five user license and they will set their pricing for you which I think is highly unethical because you need to have control on your own pricing not somebody else decides for you we've also allowed that they set their own licensing models so for example they can have they can decide if it's a pay once perpetual model say for a web font or it's an annual model because again they should have control on their business model. It shouldn't come from us, so they can decide. And we've made it flexible so that, for example, even up until a certain page view, you could have it perpetual, but then at a certain volume, it switches to annual because it's more flexible that way for the brand. If it's a very big brand and they might want to have the fund for a couple of years, why pay the perpetual cost? So it's a win-win for both. So, So we've given quite a lot of flexibility in terms of the business model for the foundries. And we've made the system in a way that gives them a lot of control on their, the visuals that they use, the fonts that they upload. They have quite a lot of control on that. And at the same time, the way of doing business is also a little bit different because every single foundry on the site, I've had a personal conversation with. We we don't just send emails and hope people join and sign up. We have face-to-face conversations, obviously on Zoom, not, not so easy in real life. And in any case, they're all over the world. We can't really have in-person meetings with all of them. But we sit and we chat and we talk and we listen. We listen to them and we tell them what we want to do. It's an honest conversation because at the end of the day, I am a designer and I have my own foundry. And we want this to be an equitable relationship and for them to have a voice. They need to feel empowered. So it was very important for us to have that type of relationship. We celebrate them as people as well. So, for example, when you go on the foundry pages, you see a quote by the foundry to try to see, you know, what is important to them and in terms of their approach to design. You can have the little pet card, obviously because we're all fans of pets here. And so, <laughs> so you have the little pet card. You have videos that they can upload to show a presentation they gave or a video that they filmed, especially for this in some cases, and to really show the people and celebrate the people who put in the work and the effort and all that love and craftsmanship that goes into type design. So it's not just that you have random typefaces that show up with a label stuck on them. No, there are people and we celebrate the people, and we celebrate the craft, you know? So it's a very different approach to how we want to interact with the foundries and how we want to market them as well and to celebrate them. When it comes to the customers, Again, when you're working with designers, what is the biggest headache when you're working with fonts? There are many different answers, but for me, it's always which font to choose. There are thousands and thousands of options. How do you choose and how do you discover and how many times are you going to scroll down that page? So, it, font discovery is a really, really important thing. And when you go on a site and all you can look at is sans serif, humanist, geometric, or somebody else's interpretation of what looks formal or what looks informal, or you know, like these tags are often abused. You could put sans serif and end up with a geometric sans serif or a square grotesque or a humanist, all under the same category. And you're like, come on, then. what's the point of having that label? Or you could just sit and scroll forever and ever. And then you get bored and then you pick whatever comes first, right? So it doesn't make sense. So if we think of the number of typefaces in existence today, the way they exist now is as if they are in a very deep well where the light shines through only a little bit. It doesn't go all the way through. And you will release a typeface, it will come to the market, and then it will sink into oblivion. And that cannot be for both the creators and the users of type because the people who put months and years into the work would like to show this work to the people so that because a typeface that is not used it has not come to life yet right it only comes to life when someone uses it and then also for the people looking for typefaces why should they see the same old typefaces every time when there are so many new typefaces except that they can't seem to get to them so something is broken in the model of how we show typefaces and how we portray them and it's all under you know what we, we like easily refer to as font discoveries. So how do you discover fonts? And so for us, the purpose is to transform that very deep well into a shallow lake where the sun shines through. Imagine that type of visual, the blue waters, you know, maybe knee length, the depth, and then clear, clear water and the sun shining through. you know it needs to be something which is accessible, something that invites you to come. And so if we think of all the typefaces in existence today, we need to form all of these different access points so that the way you discover fonts is not simply geometric, sans serif, or humanist, or what else. And this is where Cedars comes in the type descriptor system that we've put together. But also, we have other things that we're bringing to help us with that. But the whole point is that transformation of the collection of typefaces. Obviously, what we have, like we have 7,000 fonts, it's still very little, right, compared to. The people we're competing with, right? They have way more than we do, but we'll get there. But the idea is to really rethink how we talk about type and and how we show it on the site. I, I have rambled on too much. Sorry. <laughs> I'm no. glad that this kind of
1: transitioned into this Cedar's search system. That's a lot of great alliteration. Um, yeah. <laughs> because that was that was one of the most obvious things of the big redesign that you know was very prominent and. I have kind of been pontificating for a long time about how font discovery could be something other than these unhelpful categories that we barely learned once in art school 30 years ago. And here you have this new search system just kind of like, hey, by the way, we did this. And it's like, (laughs) you look at it and it's super educational, it's super interesting, it's super different than what everybody else is doing. Which, you know, for anybody listening who hasn't had a chance to look at it yet, CEDARS is an acronym for the different axes that you can search here, right? With contrast, energy level, details, axis, rhythm, and structure, right?
0: Yes, absolutely. And then there's the plus, which is very important. I'm super excited about this. We put a lot of work to get it to happen. It's, it was a little bit crazy. but But basically, normally, when we talk about typefaces, we try to classify them. And classification systems are basically buckets where you put things in. And once you put something in a bucket, you cannot put it in another bucket, right? You could assemble several buckets and put them in a bigger bucket, but you have hierarchies within the classification system, but not really those borders, right? If we look at type design and typography through this system, we have a fixed mentality when we're looking at it that way. Because what we are saying is a typeface can only exist within these boundaries But there are no typefaces that can cross these boundaries. So your space is fixed. Mm. You're done. Right? But that's not type design. Because type design is about variation. And it's about creativity and pushing boundaries sometimes within acceptable limits. But but there's a lot of... So in a way, it's actually very close to variable fonts. Because variable fonts recognizes that you have variables. And with type design you treat them a little bit differently. So if it's weight, it goes lighter and it goes darker, so heavier. Or if it's optical size, you go into a small X height to a large X height, so optical size is changing. So you have all of these types of variables that we've recognized now in technology, but we're not really talking about that in design. So the system of classification is not necessarily something that is really applicable for type design. It's applicable when you want to classify animals and birds and because a cat cannot be a dog. Right. So when you put a cat in that bucket and you put a dog in the bucket next to it, it's fine because and you have different types of cats and different types of dogs, but you will not have a half cat, half dog type of thing. Right. I mean, except with evolution in time, you might have things that cross. I don't know. But in general, (laughs) evolution is very slow. Type design is not. So in type design, we cannot have that type of mentality because we have a lot of variation within Type, de- type design and typefaces themselves. So CEDARS, what it does, it recognizes descriptors. And so it picks up these variables, these type descriptors, and describes typefaces according to what they are. So we call it CEDARS because it's an acronym, but the most important one is the S at the end. It's the structure. So I'll start with that. And basically, the structure is the skeletal system of the of the letter form right? So the same way when you do an x-ray, again, with the same example of a cat versus a dog, they look different. And because they look different, they will walk different, they will run different, they will jump different. The skeletal system holds a lot of information relating to the behavior of that animal, right? It's the same way with the skeletal system within letter forms. A humanist typeface will have a different structure than a geometric sans-serif. But a geometric sans-serif might look similar to some other serif, maybe a slab, right? with a very similar structure, but the treatment is a little bit different. So structure is, is what you're building on. Um, and, and then you have all these other factors. So if we want to go from the first to the end, so we we'll go back to the right order, as we have it on the side. So contrast is the difference between thin and thick. Then we have energy level. And this in type design, we don't really speak about a lot, but we should. Because the letter forms exist because a tool traced a structure. Whether it is a virtual tool or a real tool, it doesn't matter. But there is the skeletal system and there's a tool that gave mass and shape to that letter form. And so if it's a fast movement, that's a high energy level because you're writing quickly. If it's a slow movement, then it will be a much calmer energy level. And so it's very important that we recognize that there's a difference there because there's a lot of potential to take typefaces and give them more energy, which means just make the structure move faster. So which means, in effect, in Latin, get the arches to go deeper, you know. And so that's where you get to be close, for example, to upright italics, right? So so there's a lot of things that can happen with, with high energy. If you're designing a packaging for children's toys, you want something which is high energy. If you are designing an energy drink, you also want something high energy, right? You want to be able to reflect <laughs> that. And so, so it's important to, to, to recognize that the speed of the movement has an impact on the perception of the tech face. And then we have details such as the intersection of arches with stems, such as the terminals. And then we have axis. Axis again, is related to the angle with which you are writing. Then the rhythm. Rhythm is extremely important. And we do talk about rhythm sometimes where we talk about, you know, a design which is tight or a design which is wide. But there is one aspect of rhythm that we don't talk about because the fashion these days is to have it very regular. And that's the sort of the tempo, we call it. And so in the tempo, when all of the characters start to have the same width, it becomes a very regular rhythm. But if you look back at type design 100 years ago, the tempo was irregular. It was typical to have it irregular. If you look in posters of the 1920s and you see these massive differences between certain characters that are round with certain other characters that are narrow, and there is flavor in that, and we seem to have forgotten it a little bit. But in any case, we don't talk about it, and we should. And then there is structure.
1: A good example maybe being like a woodcut type, right? Like there was a lot of trends at that time of having like a a very wide M and a very skinny O or something like
0: that. Yeah, Where, where are these typefaces? Is it a conscious decision that we don't want to have it? Because I see the same trend in Arabic. And then I ask myself, like, why? Why do we not want that contrast? If we don't want it, why do we not want it? It's just, I'm curious. But in any case, it's something to keep in mind as a variable. And then there is that plus at the end, which is quite important because the plus is script specific. So all of these type descriptors, they fit any script. You could describe Latin or Arabic or Hebrew or Thai or Cyrillic or Greek or Chinese or Japanese. doesn't matter. But then there is the plus where you go script specific. So currently on the site, we've only described Latin, but we will add other scripts as well. And there in Latin, you can have double story A with single story A. We can go to details like... The capital M, that midpoint, if it's on the baseline or if it's floating. So imagine, because especially this is a podcast where we don't have visuals for anyone hearing this. They're either tuned off, turned it off. For whoever is still on it, thank you. (laughs) But also imagine if you have a logo and your brand starts with an M. And then you have that particular wish because you want to put this in the middle of a circle, and so that midpoint, if it's on the baseline, it gets to not work very well. And so you want, so you can come in on the side and go to what we're calling the Latin dial pad and just say, "Show me the M where the midpoint is floating." And then we show you everything we have that fits that. And then you could also say, okay, but I want a typeface where the M is floating, the A is single story, the G is double story, and I want it low contrast and high energy. And, you know, like, you can continue, right? So it can get really crazy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and we run out of typefaces very quickly, the more options you put in, right? Because, you know, you really need may, way more typefaces to, to really show how it works. But it's a little bit nuts. So I think for a beginner level, if you're not comfortable to play with the more sort of complex concepts of structure and and rhythm and these things, at least the Latin dial pad is an easy way to start. Because you see the icons like this one or that one and that one. It's like ordering of a menu, basically. When you go into a restaurant, you're like, I want this, this, and that. I like that.
1: That's an interesting way to put it. And I have to admit, too, when I was first seeing this... I thought that that page describing all of these details that you've been going over was educational, and it took me a minute to realize, no, you can click on these things (laughs) and filter it down. Like, I thought it was sort of like this, like, we're going to describe in a font which of these things it has. But no, it, it is an actual search system where you have gone in and technologically made it. So these are all filters.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So every typeface in the shop is actually described according to Cedars. We went through every single one and then we tested them. And then we went in and checked them. And then we went in and checked that all of the ones at the same energy level are actually at the same energy level, or the ones at the same level of contrast are actually at the same level of contrast for like 600 typeface families. So uh, yeah, and we will continue to do this for (laughs) all the typefaces coming in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I had help for that. So Kaya helped me and I had help. (laughs) So it wasn't just me. But I think it's important because if you want to propose something, you need to show how it works. A category is as good as the results it gives you. And CEDARS is the same. It will only be as good as its ability to describe. If it's not applied properly, it's useless. So we will always do that. Yeah.
2: I think it's really interesting, Micah, thought this was educational, the Cedars tool. And it is, I think for sure. It kind of expands definitely for younger designers, the possibilities that you have in front of you. So if younger designers are learning the Vox A type I system, for example, (laughs) which I think we've all decided is like quite antiquated at this point, they're going to learn what humanist and geometric and grotesque and neo-grotesque. And then they're just going to learn this category called display which to all means has just become a a useless category (laughs) for actually sorting through typefaces. It, It really is. And so I think it's this Cedars is like, God, and I think it is monumental in a way of, beginning to reframe typography and how we discover and find it. Because like as you said, that is such an integral part of a designer's job is to be able to do that because typography is what the future is going to be. When a type designer releases a typeface, exactly, it doesn't come to life until it's being used. And so... It's so important that we kind of move into the future where we're not limited by nine categories, whatever, and we can actually see typography as a much more dynamic, much more nuanced in a way that I think can only help The world, because if there's clients that are saying, "Hey, I have this packaging. I want a sans serif, so it looks clean and minimal." Well, that that's also like fairly hard to disperse. But like, if we can start using vocabulary and using it amongst people that maybe aren't designers either, I mean, this is going to be helpful for everyone, and this is a stepping stone that we can only keep on building on as there's more.
0: Yeah, I hope so. Absolutely. I mean, the one most important thing that I learned when I was doing the masters in Cambridge. So it's international relations, it's politics, but there is this one idea that words are important and we need to be able to to talk about typefaces in a way that doesn't block creativity. Because the moment you say geometric sans serif, 90% of the decisions have been made. We come then to design with preordained almost ideas of what typefaces are supposed to look like and what they're supposed to do. But there is so much fun sitting on that fence in between the categories, right? And so what we're trying to do here is like break the walls between, like imagine you are in a space and you have one room for geometric sans-serif where a thousand people are sitting crammed on top of one another because how many ways can you draw a circle, right? So it's, it's really crammed. That space. And then you have the room next to it with you know with humanists, also crowded, grotesque, also crowded. And then you have the other ones which are less crowded. But in any case, you don't mingle so much. And not to say that there aren't typefaces that mingle. There are a lot. It's just this, the categorization system doesn't leave space to talk about them. So they fall in the cracks. So what Cedars does is just break the walls because we don't care about the existing boundaries. What we want to do is to approach... And use words that expand the design space and and give us ways to describe what the typeface is doing. So like when I teach typeface design, I ask the students to describe to me what the typeface is supposed to do before they design it. Because I want them to use the words. Mm -hmm. Because once you have the words, you have your measuring stick by which you can measure. And if you say, I want it to be, you know... If, if you come and say, I want to design a geometric sans I already know what you're going to design because that solution has already been made and reiterated many, many times. But if you come and say, I want to have something where, you know, the tempo is irregular and then, yes, the structure is geometric, but also I want it to be high energy if possible. I don't know if actually possible, but maybe it can happen. And I want it to be high contrast but also the terminals are blunted, that means it's a sans serif, right? There is no serif at the end, so they're blunted. And so, and then you go and you start to do things, right? And and the typeface ends up looking perhaps different from anything else we've done before. Or you come in as a designer, as a graphic designer, and you're looking for a typeface, you know the impression you want to have in the typeface, you know that you want it to be friendly, you know that you want it to be, for example, space-saving, so you know you need a tight rhythm, etc., etc., and And if we can start to use these words, I mean, I agree and I hope this is the case, that we we start to talk differently about these typefaces. But also with respect to making choices across scripts, because we see this also all the time. So like I've built a career making Arabic companions to existing Latin typefaces, and many others are doing the same for other scripts or also in Arabic. And this dialogue between scripts is something that is a de facto part of our world because of the nature of global communication. So we are in a place where brands need to speak many different languages and will have many different scripts on the same page, whether it is printed or online. And so how do they talk to one another? With is they talk to each other out of the box because the moment you say this, 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 and that, and then on the site you can say, show it to me in Latin, Greek, Cyrillic, whatever, and they will, they will all show up. So, so it's a way to uh, sort of also break boundaries across the scripts, to find ways to talk about typefaces in ways that everyone can understand. So, for example, with me, they, I get clients saying, we want this on serif Arabic. So I understand what they're trying to tell me, and I make that translation in my head, but there are no serifs in Arabic. So there are no sans serifs in Arabic. Yeah, right? But I know what they mean. They, they want low contrast, big counter and looking contemporary. So right. yeah, but but I needed to do that translation and and so if we are able to adopt these words that help us make our design space bigger whether it is locally in latin or across the scripts why not? <laughs>
1: I now have to ask, just out of curiosity of what you just said, is that something that you are starting to bring into client projects? And you know, when they come and say that, instead of translating in your head, are you starting to say, well, let me teach you about this new system and you can describe <laughs> it how you want now?
0: Yeah. Funnily enough, not yet. So, like, Cedars came into existence, the, the term, probably in February, I think. I mean, it's a way how I teach type design for many years now, and that's how I design design typefaces for also many years now. But as a concept solidified as is, I think like over the spring, basically. So uh definitely by April it was April, May it was finished as a system. Um, but I haven't had a chance because I'm completely ignoring my type design business. So it's just because I'm so busy with I love typography. Um, I'm not giving enough attention to the other work, but I should, and I love my clients and, and I'm really grateful they're all patient with me. They all know that I have this other thing that's keeping me distracted. But I think in the future, for sure, but in the past, before we had the name for it, I would still describe the concept that we don't have serifs in Arabic. We don't have some. We don't speak like that. But, but we have these qualities, and look how they translate. In the end, I mean, mm. cedars came from my attempt to basically translate from Latin into Arabic. Because like when I get frutiger and I have to do frutiger Arabic. Interesting. How I do you love go that. about it? How do you go? You need to understand what the typeface is doing. And why it looks the way it does. And there is no other way. You need to strip it down to its formal qualities and the function. And then you take those formal qualities and you try to put them in the Arabic as long as they can still fulfill the same function, right? So it's both things. And Cedars doesn't go to function because it's, it's outside of the formal qualities. But you need to strip down, like, what is this typeface doing? And then you describe that, and then you go do it mm-hmm. in another script. I hope people will be able to follow this. Maybe we should put slides.
2: (laughs) This is so enlightening. Our audience is this is opening doors for a perspective they've definitely never heard. I'm going to kind of circle back a little bit. I just love that when you're talking about when you approach the foundries and the new marketplace for I Love Typography, there is a focus on people's stories. Because in reality, uh, type design is just growing immensely and it's becoming globalized in a way that was never before. And it's so exciting because we are getting just more type from scripts that have been underrepresented for so long and getting perspective from people that have been underrepresented in type design for so long. And as the world's growing, we kind of need that. I think we're also at an interesting point in type design education where things accessibility is on the rise and, you know you don't have to go to one of the most esteemed uh, type design schools to get a type design education. There's other resources available. I'm so curious kind of this idea that, A lot of the people in type design that are the most esteemed and uh, have the most name recognition and sometimes expertise are maybe based in Europe or they're based in the U.S. And certainly for the education, that seems to be kind of a parallel. But I think there are so many emerging designers that are from different parts of the world that uh, have cultural connections to these scripts that kind of have a need for more typography around them. So we're talking about scripts that haven't been as represented. And so we have these people from a more Western perspective that maybe have the expertise, but then we have people that have this cultural connection to something and they're trying to bridge that gap. Like, how Do you have any take on how we can bridge that gap and how that's going to
0: happen moving forward? Because I think it's something that needs to happen ultimately. Absolutely. So it's quite interesting, because I remember having a chat with a couple of designers that I mentor. So I mentor nine young female designers. And normally, every year, I take on three more. This year, I had to take a break because of all this. But next year, I go back to taking on more. And I remember I was chatting with the ones from the Middle East, because, you know, like the nine, they are spread all over the world. But a few of them are from the Middle East. And, and we were chatting, and I was saying, like, it cannot be the state of the world that For us to learn how to design Arabic typefaces, we have to travel to Europe or the U.S. You have to leave home, go away for a year or two. And then if you really want a career, you need to stay outside (laughs) rather than go back home. And it cannot be. So we need to find ways around that. It it is absolutely how you describe that that is the reality, uh, that we have um, a deficiency in, in type design expertise outside of the Western world. Uh not, not so much when you go, you know, Japan or China, there, there is a different story. But if you look in the Middle East, if you look in India, if you look in Thailand, the type design scene is starting to thrive, but it still is missing quite a few things. In, particularly in Arabic, things have been improving quite a lot in the last decade or two. I think in India, we're starting to see very good trends but there is still so much work to be done because in Arabic, at least, it's one script. In Indic, it's many, so 20. So I could be not accurate, could be 18, but, you know, a big number. And, and there's so much work to be done and not enough type designers and not enough market, right? So there's a lot of work that needs to happen. And many other scripts as well. These are just two of the big ones. But when someone asks me, how do I learn Arabic type design? I usually say, read resources on Latin type design, and then read resources in Arabic calligraphy and find your middle ground. That's normally the easiest way to bridge the two. Because there are concepts that are universal, such as how do you draw a good curve, the font technology aspect of things? How do you recognize rhythm? How do you treat details? How do you look at Consistency in weight, in proportion, in relationship of elements to one another. How do you get the letters to talk to one another to become words? How do words become a line? Because quite often, something which we don't speak about it often is that we don't draw letters, we don't design letters. We draw the letters, but we design words, right? We design words and sentences and paragraphs when you're doing type design. And so there's a skill in that because every letter will have many conversations with every other letter. And when they come together in a word, you need that conversation to be in harmony and not in discord. Except if you really want the discord, that's a different story, right? But they need to be able to speak to one another. So you learn that that's a global skill. It's irrespective of the script. Latin type design is very well developed and it will give you a lot of tools because it knows how to show this conversation. So you take that skill and then you go to your local and you say, okay, for example, with Arabic calligraphy, what are the aesthetics of the script? What are the traditional calligraphic styles? What are the classical proportions? What are the sort of relationship of elements? What are the proportion? What is the biggest letter? What is the smallest letter? What is the widest? What is the tallest? What is the narrowest? Which one goes deep? How many depths do you get? How many heights do you get? And so you sit and you analyze and you try to see how does it work? What is happening? Why do letters look the way they do? What is the axis? Where is it? How much contrast do we normally see? So you ask yourself all of these questions. And with that, you build up your script vocabulary. And then you go back to your type design tools. And then you make sort of a nice combination between those two. And you will get typeface designers who will design very classical typefaces. And you will have type designers who will do very modern, even abstract typefaces. There is space for all of that. But the skill sets is is those two things that need to come together. So I digress too much. So to answer your question, what we can do is to continue doing what we have now, which is make the resources more accessible, talk more about type design. And as Latin type designers, so those of us who are, or at least Latin or not, those of us based in the Western world would share the knowledge, be there for questions, mentor people if needed. So I teach classes online. My students are all over the world, most of them in the Middle East. But it makes it possible for me to have a student in Dubai, a student in Saudi, a student on the West Coast, and a student in China. And it's happened. So you are able to have things like these. And I think just build structures of cooperation whether it is going to give presentations, inviting people over for workshops, structures of cooperation across different countries, different universities, try to share the knowledge. There's a lot to be learned from widening perspectives. CEDARS would never have happened if I had not been designing Arabic and I needed to understand why Latin typefaces look how they do, and I needed to find that common language between Arabic and Latin. It wouldn't have happened otherwise, but I needed it because there was no way to explain it. The words weren't there. And so when we open our minds and our hearts, (laughs) of course, to other cultures, other scripts, other ways of writing, suddenly when you go back to your own, you've gained. And sometimes you might not even feel it or know it, but your work will be richer because your worldview has now become bigger. And there is something a little bit painful in that, in getting your mind stretched to its limits. But there is something very exciting and joyful in being open, you know. So Because uh, it's easy to stay in the same place. The first year at Reading, I, like, I actually felt my brain being stretched uncomfortably. That, that my view, even of Arabic, like, no, no, there's also Persian, did you know? Of course, I knew, but I never thought of them. You know, like, did you know about Urdu? Like, yeah, I, I know they exist, but no, I didn't think of them. You put yourself in uncomfortable positions, and and then, but then you're richer for it. So, uh... it was so
2: inspiring. It was so great to hear, and I think. We at The League have an audience that is like from corners of the world that are just interested in learning about typography and don't necessarily have, you know, uh, places to go to or meeting grounds. And I think that they're just going to like absolutely love this. And I think that's just really important as we are moving into a world where it's possible for you to mentor people from every single different time zone. (laughs) Like it should be something where people are sharing their wealth of knowledge and feel just abundantly generous because that is only going to help. Move the industry forward and help see more people get their voices heard, so then they can be on the I Love Typography site, and then we can see their pet at the yes. end of the day. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah. That is so great. So some bigger picture questions. Because you're so experienced in the type design world and because you did like such unprecedented work, like your typeface you did at Reading was the first typeface that had kind of a component that was Latin and an Arabic component in one type family. I mean, that is something that certainly paved the road for people ahead. And that's so important. So what would you say has been the hardest part of your experience in the creative field so far? We know you're so accomplished, but what kind of <laughs> was the biggest challenge
0: that you've had to overcome? Mm, as a designer or as a person? Let's do both. Okay. I think as a designer, the first years were the most difficult because I had no visual reference, really. I mean, as you said, when I was doing Kofia, There were typefaces that had Arabic and Latin in them, they existed, but they weren't designed for one another at the same time with the express purpose of being with one another. So almost the equivalent of being happily married to someone versus being on a blind date. There's a wealth of difference between coexistence between one and the other. So I didn't have any visual references. I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't particularly a good type designer. I mean, I was just starting. I didn't know how to draw. I don't draw manually by hand. My drawing skills are non-existent. It was difficult. And this is why in Cedars, the S is the most important The biggest struggle of the first few years was finding the right structure because I was doing hybrids. Because what I discovered is that I need a hybrid between two different styles of Arabic. And I was trying to find a hybrid that doesn't look like Frankenstein. It was always a struggle, like what structure do I have? What structure? What structure? And like banging my head against the wall. So that was a very difficult challenge. And then when I sort of got it then it became very easy. Then I got the language. Then I knew what I was doing and then I could continue. So that middle structure, that hybrid structure between NASCA and PUFI that didn't exist when I was trying to design Frutiger, for example, Arabic. That was the hardest. And every every typeface was the continuation of the same struggle. So Frutiger Arabic, the Universe Arabic, the Universe Next Arabic, the Neue Alvetica Arabic, all of them, they were all one big quest to try to find the right hybrid structure that would work in both headline and text. And, you know, so it was, it was difficult. So I think that as a designer would be the hardest part. On a human level, I think there was a personal cost, whether when it comes to putting career first and, and for five years, I did a PhD on the side of a full-time job. I finish one thing and I jump into the next. I'm I'm always filling my time. I mean, we go back you now to the seven full-time jobs <laughs> that I'm having. And there has definitely been a personal cost to this, whether it is in my personal relationships or like romantically speaking, definitely there's a cost that is hard to pay. Honestly, it's not nice. <laughs> And also with relationships, with friends, potentially sometimes with families. Getting everything you want out of your career is really nice for you. And is not so nice sometimes for the people around you. It sometimes puts strains on relationships, to be honest. It's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes. And you start to recognize who are the friends who want you to succeed and who are the friends who prefer to console you when you fail. They will be very loving when you fail. And you're like, that's not, where were you when I was happy? You know, Because there is this saying that says your friends, you in the hard times, you recognize who your true friends are. I would say, yes, that's the first litmus test. Then there's a second litmus test on top of it. Where are your friends when you're getting everything you want, at least in your career? There's been some cases where it's not been easy. And then, of course, being uh, a woman out of the Middle East, also unmarried, and you get, you know, with all the, everything that happens in career and life and all of that is pointless compared to the fact that I'm single, which is crazy and depressing, of course, because when you succeeded when you've gotten everything you want and and you're so excited about life and someone's like yeah i can't wait to be happy for you because that's how you say it in arabic we want to be happy for you and it's like fucking huh have you not been happy for me the last 20 years (laughs) like where were you (laughs) you know it's almost like yeah sorry for the f-word but it's almost like you are unimportant until a guy has decided that you could cook his dinner it almost feels that way because it doesn't matter what guy it is it's just just to get someone anything really at this point so <laughs> this is hilarious so uh, it's one of those realities as well but there's sometimes a fun part out of it there's sometimes difficulties by now I think people are a little bit embarrassed to wish me to be happy for me because like I'm 42 so it's like past breeding age so <laughs> it's like by the time I get 50 then I will have no pressure left you know because by then I'm properly old they will be too embarrassed to tell me we want to be happy for you so. <laughs> I will no longer look good in a white wedding dress.
1: <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say because you've spent a lifetime of like calling them on it and saying, no, be happy for me now. Look at all I've done. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, no, nah, because I'll I'll get too old. Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. Some, some mentalities don't change. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same outside Lebanon well, or not. The thing is that at first it was funny, right? But at some point after you've worked so hard, you know, and, and then for it to mean nothing. But just having someone in your life would be everything in comparison. It's a bit unrewarding to the effort that it's almost like you are not seen because all the effort you put and everything you care about is unimportant. The only important thing is someone in the house who can change the lights, you know, like... I mean, obviously, men have other purposes as well. Obviously, don't don't yeah, I'm not I'm joking. <laughs> it would be great to have a healthy, fulfilling relationship, but in the absence of that, you still need to carry on as a person. And it's a little bit annoying to feel that all of that is unappreciated. Especially that it means a lot to me, you know. Since last August until now, I've had five weekends off in the past so in almost a year which is crazy i've never worked this hard i will never do this again but i do it for a reason because i really want to and it means a lot in august i was working on fontly beirut it was because of the beirut explosion and then you know it was one thing after the other but still it, it means something to me and and so i think every person has the right to decide what is the most important thing in their life And that we need to respect that. So if the approach to a person is to say, it doesn't matter what you think is important, what will make me happy for you is what is the traditional view of you being married and having two or three kids. Whether I want that or not doesn't matter at the end of the day. I think we have the right to choose what we want to do and and people need to respect that. So there's a human cost at the end of all of that. So uh, we need to show that it is possible To be happy as a woman, if you are just a woman, not the wife of someone or the daughter of someone. As a person, that you can be fulfilled as that. Uh, I think it's important to set that as an example as well. That it cannot be that you are incomplete as a person. No. In any case, it's an unhealthy view of relationships. If you need to depend on someone to make you complete, it's too much pressure. The guy is not Superman. You are in together as a partnership, (laughs) no? So not just we need to change how we talk about type, we need to also change how we talk about relationships. The next project. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's good to be honest about the cost of working like crazy and doing all these amazing things. And also to recognize that sometimes this cost might be too high and people might not want it. That having a foundry and a fund distribution website might not be what everybody else wants to do in their life. And that's also totally okay. You know, it's... Yeah, we live in times where people compare too much and uh, we need to be happy where we are.
1: I think that's why we like always talking about some of the hardships too, you know, because often it's like a highlight reel where you get to hear all of the great accomplishments that you've done and you don't get to hear about the cost. And so it's too easy to compare yourself to someone that you look up to, someone who does amazing work and you see just that on the internet. I think it's really nice to hear the human side of it so that we don't have to compare as much and we can relate.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No. and, And I think it's important that we take a very realistic view of the people that we look up to as well, that because if you are a young designer now and say, you look at me and all the typefaces that I've designed, all the awards I've won and the foundry and ILT and the four degrees I have, I mean, it's scary, no? And then, They might think, I will never be able to do that. You need to see the whole picture, you know, that there is a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifices. And so if you are currently in a place where you are working hard and you haven't seen the results yet, that's also part of the process. That it's not just the glamorous side. There is hard work and it's not always fun.
1: And that it's a timeline, that those things didn't all happen at once and suddenly you're there. You know, you've been doing these things one after another your entire life. Exactly. And that progress.
0: Exactly. And, and also that you need to define what is important to you. And it's not the same for everyone. For me, it was important that I do these things because I always have the feeling that there is something I want to say and I want to be able to say it. Right. And it's the reason why I have all the degrees because I always felt there's a skill set I'm missing, and so I will study and I will get it, right? So I keep acquiring them. But for other people, it might be a completely different path, and that's totally fine. And it could be that some people might not want to be a prolific type designer. They might want to design one typeface every five years, and there is no problem with that. So, uh, you know, and it's not about all the hype or or anything. There's... um, Because I think also for the generation that's coming into their 20s now or are currently now in their 20s, there's a lot of pressure on them. I see that with the designers that I mentor because they've sort of grown up with social media where everything you do is under the microscope. It's almost like you are on stage all the time with no downtime for you and you have to craft your success online. You have to make it look like you're making it online and and without any space to just be you without the lights. So they don't necessarily see that for those who have come from the previous generations, we had a lot of time just being us before the lights came. And imagine you are on the play, on the stage, you get your moment in the light, but you also get the backstage and you get the time to do the work and to rehearse and do all of that. But we live in a different dynamic now where having a really large following online is almost more important than your skill set. But no, to succeed, you need the skill set and you can't develop it with someone looking over your shoulder. And social media is millions looking all over your shoulder. So so it's a very, very weird, unhealthy dynamic. And I don't have the answer. It's just, we need to recognize that we need to create a space for people to fail comfortably, out of the light, (laughs) so that they can pick themselves up and learn, right? Because, I mean, if you look at the outlines of the first Frutiger, it looks like shit. Frutiger Arabic, not Frutiger. You know, like the one I the one I drew. Not the one he drew, the one I drew. Like, they, they were not well-crafted.
1: I'm sure his in the first draft too, you know, but the, the light wasn't shining on it, so we don't know. It could be. And that's fine, yeah. that's, you know. Exactly.
2: That all, like, really kind of touched it, like, a heart of me that has just, like, I am also in that demographic that's like in my 20s right now that have felt that pressure since college and literally people telling me my senior year in college just like, just make sure you post on Instagram all the time and then you're like bound to like meet people. Yeah. And reeling with that pressure with my own work, with my own presence is so profound to hear you have such like a beautiful take on that and thank you from the bottom of my heart like that is... So it's just so helpful for me to just like hear Nadine's voice now in the back of my head whenever I like into in my own head about it. You have given us just so much generosity and transparency. We have a couple questions left. What is the most important advice you have gotten or or would like to give on creativity?
0: Big picture yeah yeah no no so it wasn't on creativity and it's a very very quick answer uh when i first joined linotype in 2005 the person who hired me was the managing director was bruno Steinert, and he told me nadine you need to learn how to say no and i was like okay it took me like six seven years but learn to say no
1: <laughs> boom
0: yeah, yeah. no be- i love it yeah, yeah because that when you're great. starting you say yes to everything
1: I feel like we could probably go another whole hour on how you learned to say no.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to the women who are listening, also learn how to sit in a meeting and not smile. You don't have to unless you want to. But I like that. Yeah, because that's an another call, <laughs> another uh, another one hour discussion. Yeah, but we should not feel the social pressure to be affirming to everyone around us. If we are unhappy with the conversation, we don't need to smile. That's not the purpose of our existence professionally. At home, we nurture, but not in the office. It's not necessary. So it's important.
1: That is great advice.
0: Thank you, Nadine.
2: Um, Final question before we start wrapping up. Who's a person working right now in the letter form world that you admire?
0: Can I pick two? I'm torn because I love both of them so much. So I really love Jessica Hish and Martina Flor. You know, they're both doing things I will never know how to do. And also one of the reasons I think why I look up to them so much is they manage to do both family and career. And with me, I can never figure it out. So for me, it's only career. Um, so, so for that is like, my God, how? It's, it's magic. <laughs> Surely there is an amount of magic involved in this. Um, but, but no, I mean, the quality of the work is unbelievable. The generosity towards the community, what they show, what they are willing to share, how much they are willing to teach. I think this is admirable. Because you will have people who are talented but don't want to share the talent. They will hide everything they know so that only them get the work. But with both Martina and with Jessica, they are so selfless in sharing everything they know and, and all the tips and all the tricks and being wonderful people on top of that. They're both amazing, amazing humans, in, just as humans, you know. So chapeau. <laughs> I really, really admire them for that.
2: Incredible. All right, that concludes our incredible interview with Nadine. Again, thank you. Your work in the type industry to say that it's profound and monumental is an understatement. I, it has just moved us forward in such incredible ways. And I know we kind of got really into the weeds for some of that, but I want to make sure listeners don't forget that this is a legend that we are talking to. Like it's, it's, it's incredible. And I'm so humbled that we were able to take the time. And I'm so excited to learn about the background of I Love Typography and kind of that initiative with the foundries and how that's moving the industry forward and your mentorship. There's so many things that I think was so excited. We got to catch up with you in 2021 and see what's happening. And I just want to thank you so much for your generosity.
0: Thank you so much. I love chatting with you and, and thank you for the invitation. It's been wonderful to chat and thank you for the insightful questions. I hope we can chat again soon.